What up, Anchor? What up, Spotify? What up, the whole entire world? I am Dre Wise, Dre Wise Calculator. How are you doing this particular, particular evening? And today I want to talk about a particular subject, a particular topic, and it's late too, oh well. What I want to discuss today, and it's 2.33 in the a.m. And the date is, here with me, is the 14th, it is Tuesday, April 2020. So, since I started later on, because I had a lot of things to do today, um, it's Tuesday, of course. I want to talk about this whole thing about African Americans got into the religion of Christianity. What is the effect of Christianity? What is the effect of Christianity done to African American people? So I want to talk about it today, 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 early morning. And at the end of the show, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let the, um, my social comments, my, not, not my social commentary, this is social commentary. I'm on, I'm on a social platform. I'm gonna let my social media commercial give you the information, what to do, uh, Cash App, all that, Facebook, all that. Stay tuned. I am Dre Wise, Dre Wise Calculator. Stay tuned. What up, Anchor? What up, Anchor FM? What up, the whole entire world, Spotify? Follow me on my Facebook account, that is Dre Wise Calculator. Also, look for uh, and check out my, um, that's coming soon, May 1st, um, my exercise video of calisthenics. And I will post that on my Facebook account, you know, as a party, as a group, whatever. Catastatics, the video of Catastatics, produced, edited by me, Dre Wise. Also, donate to my cash app, instant donate to my cash app, that is dollar sign Lucian Jarrell 7. Dollar sign Lucian Jarrell 7. Here, today on Anchor FM and Spotify and CastBox and Apple Podcast. So I'm everywhere. So like I said, look forward and check out May 1st, May 1st, my uh, catastatics video, exercise video, brought to you by me, presented by me, and produced by me. Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, your boy Dre Wise, count you, count you. Peace and farewell and stay tuned. In the New World's most anomalous slave society, though, the story's stranger. Unlike in the Caribbean, slavery in the southern United States didn't depend on imports. Slaves' birth rate exceeded their death rate, thanks to a milder climate and to an agricultural economy centered on tobacco and cotton rather than sugar. American slavery looked not just sustainable but lucrative. Southern slaveholders began to argue not only that they were designing an alternative modern world, 
but that this was a more truly Christian model than the free north offered. Abolitionists could not quite believe it, but they were being challenged for the moral high ground. Now, this idea of a conscientious Christian argument for slavery now seems so obviously ridiculous that it's worth dwelling on for a minute. Pass over the secular arguments here, that, that slavery was a feature of a well-ordered hierarchical society, that it's more truly benevolent than the irresponsible anarchy of the free labor market in, in which laborers are thro thrown over as soon as they become unfit to work, that it's a time-hallowed human institution which works with the grain of inherent racial difference, a lot on that. There's also a compelling biblical case that they make. The Bible never condemns slavery as such. It often regulates it. It implicitly condones it. True Christian slavery, white southerners argued, doesn't reduce human beings to mere property. It treats slaves as a sacred trust. People over whom their owners have admittedly rather extensive rights, but for whom they have equally extensive responsibilities. Slave and slaveholder are bound together by bonds of mutual godly obligation. If Abraham had bought slaves, if St. Paul had sent a runaway slave back to his master, if Christ himself had never spoken a word against slavery, then who are these upstart prophets to proclaim an abolitionist gospel of their own invention? Well, the obvious retort was that this idealism bore no resemblance to the realities of American slavery. I even leave aside slavery's open cruelties and its racial basis. The lack of any legal status for slaves' marriages and the widespread laws prohibiting slaves from learning to read are both an acute embarrassment for Protestants. But abolitionists who turned gratefully from the general principle to these specifics found their argument dissolving in their hands. Southerners freely acknowledged that their system needed reform. They argued that the chief obstacle to reform was the dangerous discontent which abolitionist agitators were stirring up. If the abolitionists would only shut up, then the result could be a reformed, godly slavery. America's gift to the world. Many instinctively anti-slavery white Protestants felt the power of these arguments. If this was you, you might, for example, concede that slavery is tolerable in principle under some circumstances, simply very undesirable. But in that case, while you might press for emancipation, you've conceded that the matter's debatable. And in the American context, that means that you're likely to recognize each state's right to make its own rules. And you're not going to break Christian fellowship over the issue. And you're not going to try and force the pace. It's the southern churches which break away from the northern ones, not vice versa. Unsurprisingly, black American Protestants found it rather easier to answer the pro-slavery arguments. They tended to focus not on textual niceties, but on the real evils which clustered around slavery like maggots. especially considering West Africa is thousands of miles away from the Americas and Europe. 
Slavery has existed in multiple forms throughout history and across a wide variety of cultures. But slavery in the early Americas, meaning the North American colonies, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean, was ultimately powered by the labor of enslaved Africans and their descendants. And there's an important question many people don't stop to ask. Why Africans? There was nothing inherent to the social or psychological makeup of West Africans and their descendants in the 17th through 19th centuries that made them more prone to enslavement. So, to get to the heart of our question, we should first ask ourselves, why did Europeans set out to colonize the Americas to begin with? Okay, so before I dive into the answers to these questions, I think it's important to note that there is no such thing as benevolent slavery, since any system that's predicated on the exploitation and extraction of labor through violence and force cannot be considered fair. However, the purpose of this rough timeline is to sketch a comparison without creating hierarchical values of assessing harm inflicted on enslaved people. To set the scene of the early American colonies, European powers such as Spain, followed by Portugal, the Dutch, British, and French, ventured out in search of conquest and capital. Their early explorations of the Americas, starting in 1492 and continuing up until the 18th century, weren't driven by wanderlust and a desire for adventure, no matter what disnified versions of colonization we learned in the movie Pocahontas. Instead, they were looking for one primary thing, wealth. And this could mean gold and silver, or it could mean land, farmland, and commercial crops. The driving incentive for exploration was to increase European power and to fatten the royal coffers. But initially, slavery was not the source of this wealth. The early Spanish colonists to Central and South America in the 16th century wrested control of silver and gold mines that had been controlled by Incan and Aztec empires. By forcing native groups to extract silver and gold from the mines they had already established, colonists were able to meet their desires for high profits with low labor costs, aka no labor costs because they weren't exactly intent on paying anyone. And the colonists were brutal. By working native people to death, cutting off limbs if they didn't extract enough materials quickly, or threatening them with murder, the Spanish were able to increase their mining efforts in these regions and to meet their specific demand for increased wealth throughout the 16th century. And despite European expectations, in other regions like North America or the Caribbean, there weren't huge repositories of gold and silver to send back to Europe. But even though there was little precious metal to be found, the monarchies and the early colonists who arrived in these areas were equally intent on yielding high profits. So they turned to crops that yielded high profits like sugar, tobacco, rice, and later cotton. In order to assure the highest profits, they began to look to slavery, since European laborers and indentured servants required payment or other forms of protection. So next we have to ask, when did colonists in the Americas turn to the African continent as a site for extracting slaves? The first enslaved Africans arrived in the North American colonies under control by the British, the areas that would later become part of the U.S., in 1619, when 20 were forcibly transported to Jamestown, Virginia by the Dutch. But the first enslaved Africans had arrived in the Caribbean and Latin America prior to that, starting as early as the first decade of the 16th century. Because, remember folks, the colonies established in the Americas, plural, cover South, North, and Central America, plus the Caribbean, and not just the present-day U.S. But the transportation of African people into slavery began before the colonization of the Americas. According to an article by Professor Dr. Hakim Adid, the Portuguese began enslaving Africans in the 15th century when they arrived on the African continent for the purposes of trade. Around that time, they were enslaved Africans, among other enslaved and free populations, in Portugal. So even though it wasn't the only or necessarily most widespread form of slavery at the time, this 
15th century precedent would set the stage for later decisions surrounding slavery that were to come in during colonization in the Americas. But at that point in time, captivity wasn't extended exclusively to black people or people from the African continent, and was often the result of raids, warfare, or slave trading that included Islamic traders, West African groups, and Europeans, among others. Okay, so we've established the precedents leading up to the explosion of the West African slave trade. So our final question is, why did European colonists start to look exclusively at West Africans as a source of slave labor? And how did the emergence of chattel slavery in the Americas differ from pre-existing forms? Remember that the colonies were established to make money for royal families and wealthy colonists. And a small class of wealthy colonists who owned large plantations looked to increase their margins through not paying for the labor that generated their cash crops. So it wasn't that slavery was needed to develop the colonies, but rather that it was decided that this was the quickest way to enrich the people invested in getting rich. Black slaves continued to arrive in the Caribbean, North America, and South America through the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. And it wasn't until the 19th century that slavery began to be eradicated. However, by this point, there was a large slave population in the Americas, and the condition of slavery was considered legally hereditary, with children taking the status of their mothers in perpetuity. When Europeans arrived in the Americas, colonists found that the previously established system that relied on enslaving conquered enemies was not functioning for several key reasons. Namely, first, early attempts in the Americas to enslave Native Americans proved difficult because they had familiarity with the terrain of their own nations and land. As a result, the potential for escape or revolt was high. This made using a system of leading raids and then enslaving whoever lost the battle less achievable, since colonists had little to no idea how to survive in these new regions and often fell prey to diseases which Europeans had no immunity to, namely malaria. The subsequent rampant genocide of Native American people and the introduction of new diseases that decimated their population, namely smallpox from Europe, made widespread enslavement less possible. But by transporting people from West Africa to the Americas, European colonists wanted greater ability to control enslaved populations by making escape more challenging and reducing the risk of those who did flee blending into neighboring Native nations. Although the fact that there continued to be slave revolts amongst enslaved Africans and their descendants proves that this calculation was often mistaken. Second, West Africa was often the source of forced and kidnapped laborers because of its proximity to seaports, which made contact between these three locations more possible. Also, laborers from West African countries were more familiar with the agricultural methods needed for mass cultivation of these kinds of crops in the New World. So, how does it all add up? Well, even though the slave trade brought an estimated 9 to 12 million people here from Africa as cargo, colonists eventually resorted to reproduction within the colonies as a method for sustaining slavery. This meant that slavery could be passed down as an inherited status from mother to child. And to justify this never-ending enslavement, we started to see the evolution of false race science and racialization used as a justification for why one group of people, specifically people of African descent, were the only ones who could be enslaved. But this shift erased the reality that prior to turning to West Africa as a labor source, slavery existed across racial lines and was dictated more by battles and military capture than by skin tone. The resulting idea we had about race evolved out of a desire by people engaging in the slave trade to find an after-the-fact justification for enslaving people from one specific region over others. This history of racialization is covered in our episode on the origins of race in the USA, so check that out if you want to learn more. So, what do you think? Got anything to add to this historical puzzle? Any other resources or thoughts to share? Drop them down below since this is obviously a much bigger timeline than I was able to fully cover today, and be sure to dig down into the works cited to keep reading. So that's it for now, and we'll see you next week. Hey guys, thanks for chiming in on last week's episode about shaving. Here's what some of you had to say. 
What up, Anchor? What up, Anchor FM? What up, the whole entire world, Spotify? Follow me on my Facebook account, that is Dre Wise Conqueror. Also, look for uh, and check out my, um, that's coming soon, May 1st, um, my exercise video of calisthenics. And I will post that on my Facebook account, you know, as a party, as a group, whatever. Catastatics, the video of Catastatics, produced, edited by me, Dre Wise. Also, donate to my cash app, instant donate to my cash app, that is dollar sign Lucian Jarrell 7. Dollar sign Lucian Jarrell 7. Here, today on Anchor FM and Spotify and CastBox and Apple Podcasts. So I'm everywhere. So like I said, look forward and check out May 1st, May 1st, my uh, catastatics video exercise video brought to you by me, presented by me, and produced by me. Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, your boy Dre Wise. Count your count your peace and farewell and stay tuned. Ron Thiemann from Harvard Divinity School, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this second lecture in the Religion and Society Doctoral Colloquium on Theorizing Race and Ethnicity in Religious Studies and Theology. We are delighted to welcome as this evening's lecturer, Professor Eddie Glaude. Professor Glaude is the William S. Todd Professor of Religion and African American Studies at Princeton University and is a core faculty member in the Center for African American Studies. He is also the founding member and senior fellow of the Jamestown Project, based here in Cambridge, which is an initiative that provides a forum for everyday citizens to engage in democratic deliberation on issues of race, ethnicity, and gender. Professor Glaude's first book, Exodus, Religion, Race, and Nation in Early 19th Century Black America, won the Modern Language Association William Sanders Scarborough Book Prize in 2000. He's also edited Is It Nation Time, Contemporary Essays on Black Power and Black Nationalism, published in 2002, and in 2003, collaborated with Cornell West in editing African American Religious Studies and Anthology. His most recent book, In the Shade of Blue, Pragmatism and the Politics of Black America, published in 2007, is an important and critical engagement with the philosophical thought of John Dewey making the case that pragmatism remains a live and viable option for thinking about African-American politics in the 21st century. Most fascinating about this work is that it ends by advocating for what Glaude has called a post-soul politics, the working title for his next book, which is a form of political engagement that acknowledges the legacy of black freedom struggles of the 60s, but ultimately moves beyond that legacy in an effort to rise to the new challenges facing America's commitment to values in participatory democracy. Tonight, with the overall arching theme of this lecture series, his lecture is entitled, The African in African American Religion. Professor Eddie Glaude. Pleasure to be here with you this this evening, uh, with so many friends. Uh, Professor Gregory uh, from my hometown, uh, not really hometown, but from my institution, to see uh, the great 
Charles Adams here. It's just amazing. It's an honor to be here with you. Uh, I want to thank uh, uh, Dr. Thieman, my dear brother Ron, and brother Terrence for for making this moment um, possible. Uh, um, I have uh, a close friend from Morehouse who's here, Professor Ron Sullivan from from Harvard Law School. We went to Morehouse together. We're getting old together. And I see several of my former students, uh, Danielle from Amherst and Ernie from, from Princeton, and, and it's a delight to be here. And um, hopefully I'll have something to say that's of substance. Um, let me jump right into it. The title, I adjusted the title a bit. Sister Marla and, and Sister Evelyn, thank you for, for coming. Uh, Jock Reader, Dean, uh, everybody. I shouldn't have, once you start listing, you, you get in trouble, don't you? It's one of the sins of this thing. Uh, Dean Graham, thank you. Um, let's just jump into it. I, I changed the title a bit. It's Africa in the Study of African American Religion. Um, and this is really part of a broader set of reflections. I'm obsessing at this particular moment with uh, uh, Du Bois's reflections on, on, on African American religion. And this is just another kind of vignette piece, kind of thinking about what he opens up and what he shuts down. Um, And in this case, I want to talk about how Africa figures in the study of African-American religion. Um, Studying religion is a perilous endeavor. Uh, We need only think about the inherent ambiguity in the field's central term of art, religion, and reflect on the multiplicity of traditions and practices that complicate what can be said about religions to get a sense that the subject matter is fraught with difficulties. Those of us who study religion often find ourselves in what Samuel Beckett called the mess. The messiness of faiths, beliefs, doctrines, rituals of modern prejudices, and of the practices of a scholarly guild with its own standards of excellence and failure. Like Beckett, Our task as scholars has been and continues to be to to find some way to accommodate this mess. That is, in part, our own doing. And many of us, at least some of us, I think, recognize, even as we stumble about, that much is at stake. An informative body of literature has been written about the difficulties in the study of religion. I don't need to go into that. My aim in this talk tonight is not to take up the particulars of those debates, I do hold the view, however, that many of the concerns evidenced in these conversations are interestingly complicated when the term religion is overdetermined by the adjective black or African American. I hold this view because the adjectives bear the unusual burden of an enormously complicated history that colors the way religion is practiced and understood. Indeed, on their own, both terms generate enormous debate, distinctions between being religious and doing religion, or concerns about whether races are real or not, animate conversations throughout the academy. But what happens when we think about them in tandem? What do we mean when we describe certain African American practices as religious practices? And what work is the adjective doing here? How do our answers to these questions inform our histories 
of African-American religion. Now, I don't know why I brought it up, but I won't be able to take up these rather broad questions in the context of this talk. <laughs> but I brought them up anyway. Um, but they frame how I examine the vexed issue of the place of Africa in the study of African-American religion. Indeed, uses of the trope of Africa in many accounts of African-American religion help us understand the potential meanings that follow from thinking about the terms together, particularly in the manner in which the trope registers histories of violence and displacement that capture the distinctive entree of African-Americans into the modern world. Indeed, the distinctiveness of African-American religion is often located in its African origins, a place that simultaneously marks a condition of living prior to the fateful encounters with white Europeans, and one tragically disrupted by them as well. This disruption, in some ways, necessitates, at least for some of us, a narrative insistence on the centrality of Africa and its place in the beliefs choices and actions of the continent's descendants. Africa, and in some instances its diaspora, stand then as a principle of narrative and historical uncertainty, the site of an imaginary order disrupted by profane history that speaks of a destiny resulting from that disruption. In this sense, Constructions of African-American religion that take seriously questions of African origins and dispersion accentuate issues of black agency, resistance, and freedom precisely because those constructions take shape amid the destruction and ruin that followed Europe's encounter with Africa. Robert Orsi, can I mention his name here? <laughs> Robert Orsi has it right being na naughty. <laughs> Robert Orsi has it right when he says that, quote, the history of the study of religion is always a political history, just as the political and intellectual history of modernity is always a religious history, end quote. The history of African-American religion is no different. It is always a political history of sorts, distinctly signifying on discourses about religions and religion in the West. And of course, the trope of Africa is one of its central tools. Uses of Africa in the histories of African-American religion do a certain kind of work in what I want to call narratives of recovery, redemption, and resistance. We can talk about that later. These kinds of stories announce that the lives of Africa's children do not begin with the transatlantic slave trade, that these individuals exhibit in their daily lives the presence of Africa in their worldviews, in their conceptions of life and death, and in the moral and ethical principles that guide them as they negotiate their circumstances. Within these narratives, black agency is central because the very presence of African Americans acting on their own behalf betrays the lie that white supremacy has reduced them to mere pawns in the doings of white men. Of course, the fact of African descended peoples acting for themselves, taking on this significance as opposed to, as opposed to some other, involves a kind of poetic troping of the facts, which gives them the quality of heroic self-assertion a sense of commonly shared experience, 
and a singularity of reference and meaning that come to signify the essence of a people engaged in struggle. Now, such stories are not necessarily bad. The violence of America, physical and epistemic, easily warrants such a narrative technique that emphasizes the, quote, unifying experiences of African peoples dispersed by the slave trade, as well as efforts to locate a single culture within singular historical roots, or single culture with singular historical roots, as a basis for emboldening those persons to resist their subjugation. So what I just said was, it's not necessarily a bad thing that we tell a story about these folk who caught hell because of the slave trade. And then when we tell a story about them being located in one particular place, that that location in one singular culture provides them with singular historical roots, which gives those dispersed people the resources to imagine themselves as agents in the world. That's not a bad thing at all. Moreover, in light of the grand narratives of American religion and history that all too often marginalize the presence of African Americans, Such narratives constitute important interventions and corrections. They reveal the bodies buried beneath the pristine histories of the American nation-state. But we need to understand these stories as constructions that attempt to do a certain kind of work, not simply as the account of the origins of African-American religion. They are indeed other ways of beginning the story. There are other ways of beginning the story. Now, of course, the distinction is to be made between origins and beginnings. Beginnings constitute a first step in the production of meanings about a given topic, as well as a means of differentiating between competing views. I begin this way as opposed to that. Origins, some would believe, are not subject to such choice. They reflect the fact of the matter. We cannot begin the story otherwise. My aim here is to recast this concern about origins in light of the overall question of narrative. What are the implications of beginning the story in this way and holding the view that this beginning as opposed to another constitutes the beginning of the story of African American religion? Why do we have to begin with Africa? as a way of marking the distinctive agency of African-American practitioners of religion. Edward Said writes of beginnings. Can I quote Said here? (laughs) Sure. A beginning suggests either A, a time, B, a place, C, an object, D, a principle, or E, an act. In short, Detachment of the sort that establishes distance between either time, place, an object, principle, or an act on the one hand, or what came before it on the other. Said goes on to write, my beginning, my beginning, specializes still more. But the moment I unconditionally speak of the beginning, knowledge is theologized. Knowledge is theologized. Once made the focus of attention, Said goes on to say, the beginning, once made the focus of attention, the beginning occupies the foreground and is no longer a beginning but has the status of an actuality. And when it cedes its place to that which it has aimed 
to produce or to give rise to it. It can exist in the mind as virtuality. Paraphrasing, Said uh, says, both Hegel and Vico, we can say, and I think this is really important, that formally the problem of beginning is the beginning of the problem. Why do we have to begin with Africa, right, as a way of marking the distinctive agency of African-American practitioners of religion? Edward Said writes of beginnings. Can I quote Said here? <laughs> sure. A beginning suggests either A, a time, B, a place, C, an object, D, a principle, or E, an act. In short, detachment of the sort that establishes distance between either time, place, an object, principle, or an act on the one hand, or, or what came before it on the other. Said goes on to write, my beginning, my beginning, specializes still more, but the moment I unconditionally speak of the beginning, knowledge is theologized. Knowledge is theologized. Once made the focus of attention, Said goes on to say, the beginning, once made the focus of attention, the beginning occupies the foreground and is no longer a beginning but has the status of an actuality. And when it cedes its place to that which it has aimed to produce or to give rise to it, it can exist in the mind as virtuality. Paraphrasing Said. Uh, says, both Hegel and Vico, we can say, and I think this is really important, that formally, the problem of beginning is the beginning of the problem. The problem of beginning is the beginning of the problem. Stories of African American religion that posit Africa as the beginning generate particular problems that need to be made explicit. Not so much because knowledge is theologized. Said is justifiably skeptical of the processes by which historical claims are mapped onto the very order of things, an order that stands apart from the actual doings and sufferings of people. I take it that his characterization of such processes as the theologizing of knowledge is consistent with his thoroughgoing secularism. One need not embrace, however, his overall suspicion of religion to take seriously his insights about the problem of how to begin to grasp the relationship between the past and the circumstances and exigencies of the present. We can in fact begin to do some of the work of making these problems explicit by isolating particular dimensions of the narrative of African-American religion such a beginning has produced. We should be mindful when we write or invoke history, and I say this to those of you who know this already, but we should be mindful when we write or invoke history as historians, philosophers, or as cultural critics that we are not engaged in a dispassionate detailing of facts or a mere representation of the record. Rather, we actively work in shaping the narrative and singling out certain events and particular characters, and we do so with purposes and interests in mind. 
In writing such histories, we find ourselves negotiating the authority of tradition, the constraining power of conventions, and encountering the limits of narrative form. History that is always written, even when not explicitly acknowledged to be so, from a self-consciously critical point of view, and in full awareness of the temporal distance between the historian and the subject or subjects about which she writes. I like Thomas Tweed's kind of characterization of this process when he writes, the stories that fill history textbooks are important because they negotiate power and construct identity. They situate us in society and tell us who we are. Historical narratives often reflect and shape the social and economic order. Individuals and groups excluded from narratives are excluded from more than stories. Those who do not find themselves or their experiences represented in the most widely told stories engage in struggle, private and public, quiet and noisy, to make sense of themselves and locate their place among others in the wider society. Historical narratives, then, Tweed writes, never are just history. Right? There always is a great deal at stake for narrators and readers. Always much to gain and lose in power and meaning. End quote. For subject people, for folk catching hell, this, is, this insight takes on added significance. Can I say for folk catching hell here? <laughs> I've been moving, just as a quick aside, I've been moving between different spaces. You know, I've been kind of, I just did a radio show in Mississippi, uh, in Macomb, Mississippi. And now I'm here at Harvard. It's been a journey. <laughs> so I'm trying to keep these worlds in, in place. Now, but Tweed's insight uh, takes on added significance for folk who are oppressed, who are catching hell. Their subjugation not only involves their actual bodies, but also the colonization of history, capital H and the forging of a regime of truth that often regulates them beyond the margins. Remember that paraphrase from Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. By a perversion, the colonizer is not content with just simply like, colonizing the subject, but to go into the history of the colonized and to wipe it clean. So history, capital H, becomes a crucial site of struggle. This account not only removes the slave, for example, from history at capital H, but denies her moral standing as a result. As such, history becomes a critical battleground, often resulting in a theologized history upon which issues of meaning, identity, and resistance are addressed. And for black folk, I want to maintain, Africa stands as a crucial site of contestation in this battle. In his 1998 book, Afrotopia, Wilson Moses, uh, extraordinary histori intellectual historian, delineates popular traditions of African-American historiography that reflect this political and existential reality. Both the historiography of decline, that is a historical narrative that begins with the greatness of an African past that has been displaced by the brutality of the West, and the historiography of progress, a story that posits a progressive evolution toward improved conditions for African Americans engage, according to Moses, in a battle around meaning and identity. 
Both historical accounts take up the importance of Africa as a site for regeneration and recovery of meanings lost in the face of the brutality of white supremacy. Both stand as different examples of a kind of vindicationism or what he says, quote, the project of defending black people from the charge that they have made little or no contribution to the history of human progress, end quote. What is interesting about Moses' account for my purposes tonight is the extent to which he captures a general tendency in African-American religious historiography, how we account for the African presence in African-American religion, how we understand its power in the religious imagination of African-Americans, its influence on the form and content of black religious expression, and its centrality to a conception of black identity forced in the struggle for freedom in the new world. Now, I think Du Bois is at the heart of this. And so this section is called Du Bois, A Beginning of Sorts. W.B. Du Bois's classic text, The Souls of Black Folk, and particularly his chapter of The Faith of Our Fathers, inaugurates these sorts of concerns in the formal writing of African-American religious history. I read of the faith of our fathers as one of the first treatments of African-American religion as an object of inquiry. Right? He's not engaged in the explication of a faith tradition. He's not trying to take, he's not engaged in writing church history. In fact, he's treating African-American religion as an object of sociological inquiry, as an object of historical investigation. Du Bois does not take himself, as I said, to be explicating the faith claims of a particular religious denomination. Rather, he sets out to examine the social history of the quote-unquote black church and its then-current role in African-American life. As such, many of the concerns that preoccupy, I believe, contemporary studies of African-American religion can be found in Du Bois' account. I don't want to make the genetic fallacy here, right, by trying to link all of the current stuff to Du Bois's failings, but I think Du Bois, in interesting sorts of ways, sets the frame for how much of African-American religious um, studies or religious history is written. Now, three important tendencies stand out. First, Du Bois foregrounds the social function of black churches and draws on the distinction between otherworldly and thisworldly religion, between accommodation and protest. Those of you who are studying African-American religion, you know those categories, that binary just is an obsession of those of us who study African-American religion. So this distinction between otherworldly and thisworldly religion that has defined so much of the literature on the subject, the emphasis on black churches also reveals in some interesting sort of way the decidedly Christian bias in much of the work done on African-American religion. Second, Du Bois refuses to ghettoize his account of African-American religion, right? He understands it within the larger context of American religious history, right? Prefiguring Sidney Alston's claim that the recovery of African-American religion serves as a paradigm for the recovery of American religious history generally, right? Du Bois' account of African-American religion functions, I believe, in the context of souls as a synecdochic account where to tell the story of African-American religion is to tell, in part, the story of American religion, right? Lastly, Du Bois', is a, du Bois attempts to account for the place of Africa in the history of African-American religion. In fact, he answers the question, what have been the successive steps 
of this social history? Remember that question in souls? If you don't, just nod your head. What have been the successive steps of this social history? With the claim, he answers that question with the claim that the foundations of African American religion are found not in America, but in Africa. Du Bois writes, quote, First, we must realize that no such institution as the Negro Church could rear itself without definite historical foundations. These foundations we can find if we remember that the social history of the Negro did not start in America. He was brought from definite social he was brought from a definite social environment. The polygamous clan life under the headship of the chief and the potent influence of the priest. His religion was nature worship with profound belief in invisible surrounding influences, good and bad, and his worship was through incantation and sacrifice, end quote. Now, drawing on the bad anthropological descriptions of Africa that circulated at the time, Du Bois offers a description of a form of life that in fact informed how African-descended peoples negotiated the devastating implications of New World slavery. He describes the violent disruption of forms of life and claims that although it was a horrific social revolution, quote, some traces were retained of the former group, group life and the chief remaining institution, as you recall, was the priest or the medicine man, right? And then he makes a correlation between the priest, medicine man, and the preacher, right? And the preacher, of course, is part of this threefold characterization of the black church, the preacher, the music, and the frenzy, right? So I'm not interested in vindicating, I'm not interested in a lot today, I'm not interested in vindicating Du Bois' claim about the continuity between the medicine man and the black preacher. What interests me instead is that his move to Africa as foundation must be understood within the context of writing history, small h, against history, capital H a form of writing bound up with the struggle against white supremacy. To highlight the trope of Africa, of African beginnings in the construction of his story then is to read Du Bois' use of the trope as part of a discursive battle to redeem African Americans. And given that I'm figuring his study as paradigmatic for African American religious history, his beginning sets the trajectory of how the story has been told ever since, I believe. Now, one can see this way of beginning the narrative in the extraordinary ferment of the 1960s and 70s, when so many of our now classic texts in the field were written. These histories sought to recover and redeem a past long neglected in mainstream American religious history. Albert Rabito, um, whom I love dearly, reflected on the time, reflecting on the time, writes, quote, for many of us, Studying in those movement years, the attempt to research and write about African American history had a personal significance and a political impetus. I felt that in my recovery of this history lay the restoration of my past, myself, and my people. In this context, I chose to write about the history of the religious life of slaves. End quote. Now, I think this view captures much of the moment, particularly the sorts of debates about slave agency and religious commitments. Many wrestled with the question of what, if anything, was distinctive about slave culture, end quote. 
The question of distinctiveness was answered by many, not necessarily Professor Rabatel, but by many with appeals to African survivals, right? Slave religion was not merely a replication of the master's religion. Slaves were not reduced to sambos by the peculiar institution. Rather, they had the resources to forge itself amid the absurdity of their condition. Those resources were African. And the scholarly work aimed to demonstrate this connection and continuity. And it didn't have to be in the Hertzkovitzian model. Right? Many people wanted to just simply turn to Africa. If you read Michael Sobel's work, for example, on Black Baptist, right? you see this initial journey to Africa as a way of locating a particular kind of Welsenschau and a particular kind of worldview as to how folk ought to understand the uniqueness of black religiosity, right? Part of what we have to see, part of what we see in this moment, right, is there's a way in which we can think about these people as not being simply reducible to the hell that they're catching in slavery, that they're not just simply extensions of the master's will. Well, how do we account for that? But well, we want to trace them beyond this institution, and the way we do that is to Africa. Is to turn to Africa. I point your attention to this work, to this work, not to belittle it or to call its scholarship into question. Far from it. I only want to highlight the way Africa has been implanted in the story in light of a broader context within which histories of African American religion have been written. Histories in which certain motifs, characters, plots, and settings orient the reader and locate her in a particular terrain and social space. Uh, there's a wonderful, I'm, I'm thinking about the context of, of these brief reflections. It's really kind of... Y'all, I'm Jamela Mustafa with BET Social, and I'm here with... David Banner, and I'm pulling up. Hey, pull up. So, all right, let's just hop right into it. Um, there's a lot of transitions going on in music. Nowadays, we're watching uh, as artists are transitioning into apparel or even film, but you made such a sharp transition into activism, which is kind of rare. So tell us about that transition. For a long time, I was really embarrassed of the old David Banner, but now I understand that that was necessary, and that's one of the reasons why these kids trust me. Because in my life, I'm one of the few artists who life unfolded in front of them. You know what I'm saying? So they can see that you can still be conscious and make mistakes. They can see that, you know, you come from Mississippi, you know, eating every part of the pig and then become a, you know, a vegan or a vegetarian or whatever I am today. It just depends. I'm a, I'm a, when I want a terrier. You know That's what right. I'm saying? When That's I want a terrier. But, but what I'll say is that, um, activism isn't, it's a lifestyle. It doesn't have anything to do with me making an effort. You know what I'm saying? That's who I've always been. So going back to, to college when you talk about dreams and, and decisions, what made you say, okay, all right, I, I did the undergrad thing, I did the SJ thing, I'm going to go pursue my master's at UMBS, and hmm, never mind, I want to pursue music. What what happened for you during that time in your life? So you want the you want the uh, I want the real. Okay, Come on, don't, real. don't even ask the so question. So I started hearing voices. Hmm. Like um, I had a three point nine nine eight seven an accelerated master's program. Like I was from the hood and all that kind of stuff, but I've always been super smart. You know, um, and you know the things that people think smart people are smart in, I guess. But um, I started hearing voices, and I I. All my friends was like, dude, you already out the hood. Like, you got all A's and one B and accelerated master's program. Like, why you still want to rap? Like, you already out. I started hearing these voices. I'm serious. And it felt like I was going down the wrong path. And mm. although it seemed like a great path, like, because I probably would have been a doctor right now. 
but I'd have been so unhappy. Like, I think hell to me, hell is doing the same thing over and over again for 20 years and don't remember what you did five years ago. Like, you can't differentiate the difference. They all bleed together. Like, no matter how good or bad my life is, every day of my life is different. I work around people that I love and I care about. And I have an opportunity to change people's lives and make a whole lot of money doing it. So, on the line of education, um, not, not to switch the mood up, but, but it's so, we have, to, we have to talk about it. Gun violence in the schools. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on it? <laughs> Can I? I want to cuss one time. I I think I think this shit. I think it's bullshit. And I tell you why, man. It's been gun violence in black neighborhoods and black schools and shootings. Man, the only reason why people care about this is because some white folks dying. That's just the truth, and we don't want to admit that. Like blacks been black by gun violence, period. And we should just say what it is. Like when when black folks started talking about the recession, that's some bullshit. Mm. It's always been a recession for black people since we got off of those boats. So the only reason why it's called a recession now is because it's affecting white people who are used to having money. So, like, for me, gun violence is not the problem. It's the psychological ramifications of what slavery did to black people and black worth. Like, we live in the South. Guns ain't never been a problem. I had a gun since I was eight. Like, you never really heard of, of people playing with guns in the South and, and, and shooting each other by mistake. If... If somebody got shot in the South, we were shooting at you. I just think we should be careful to not allow people to manipulate our emotions and the way that we feel based on something that has historically always been happening as of recent history in black schools. And nobody wants to say anything when it happens to black people. As a matter of fact, that's one thing that I thank Trump for. Hmm. Trump. If nothing else, Trump took away the liberal white person's ability to say that this was a post-racial America. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, so, like, for, for me, I don't get caught in the emotions. If you want to talk about gun rights and gun laws, let's just talk about that. Let's not use the death of innocent, you know, children in general to really push forward somebody's agenda. We're still talking about the same exact things that our great-grandparents were talking about. As much as we say America has moved, that we move forward, we're literally still talking about the same exact things. And this is the thing that I'm scared of. So many people say that I have the potential to be this great leader. But I always ask people, like, why would you want me to be a leader? You didn't listen to any of the ones that came before me. And then you let people kill them and you did nothing. Name one black person. Name one. I'm not asking for two. Name one black person who died in the public that black people went and did something about it. Just one. We can do Emmett Till. We can do Mike Brown. We can do Malcolm. We can do Martin. So I always tell people that black folks have something that I call the Jesus complex. See, the reason why people want a Jesus, to me, I always tell people, I scare black people. I say, Jesus is never coming back. Black people go, <gasps> and I tell them, I say, but. I think the story of Jesus was to show you that you could be God on earth. But the problem is, is people don't want to put in the work that Jesus put in. People don't want to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. If your ass fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, you're going to hear some voice. It might just be, I'm hungry. But you're going to hear a voice and your ass might walk on water. Mm -hmm. See, the problem is, is they want Jesus because they don't want to do the work. Let's go ahead and talk about, uh, let's get into the box, right? right. So you, you think that it's just the album and it's the music that you're dropping. You got the single out. But then we're watching you, like, do cool giveaways. And then we're watching, like, so what is it? So, so this is what's funny about the God Box. Um, 
I created something that was called the God Box, where I actually created a God Box. What really sold was the actual God Boxes. And what I did was, is I went and got all of the things that helped me become conscious. And I said, if there was a, anybody, because there was a, I don't know if people going to like when I say this, but it's the truth. It's a man who got the God Box and changed his religion. Like, he was 50 years old. Wow. I put the first book uh, from the Broader Files. I put that in there. I put two DVDs in there, one about finances. Uh, one was Hidden Colors, the one with me and Nas on there. Uh, I created our people uh, flag, you know, the actual God box. I just put all of these things in there, whether you're watching TV, listening, the clothes. I wanted to surround people with consciousness. A small finger? Because you got tired of being America's N-word. Mm. What does that mean? Well, one of the things that I think that happens that I don't even think that we as black people notice is that there's two types of, of black people that America loves to pay. And that's the out of control, stereotypical, you know, fear-based black man. Then it's your total sellout, no beard, no culture. He don't stand for nothing. Just Mr. Get Along guy. You feel me? And even though I've been conscious since I was in 11th grade, you know, there's a very, and, 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 and I promise you, man, when Dave Chappelle was going through what he was going through, bro, I wanted to just go find him and tell him, bro, I feel the same way. There's a, there's a very thin line between culture and stereotypes, hmm. you know, and I don't know if you remember this, doing my album Certified, I had started dressing up in suits. Right. And all my homeboys said, bro, what are you doing, man? Like, that's crazy. And I was like, bro, although we do wear gold teeth, although, you know, we do wear white tees, that's not the only thing in our culture. Think about our music. 80% of our music is about violence and selling dope, but 80% of our community don't sell dope, and 80% of our community is not violent. So then why is 80% of our music that? It's because that's what America pays for. That's what these record labels pay for. And black folks always get the residual effects of the shit that America has historically done, but we never put it on them white folks and them accountants and them lawyers that's sitting behind those desks. And I know one of them in particular who said he ain't signing nothing but violent music. So for me, you know, I had fallen into that myself. And if you notice, Vlad, I'm not talking about no other rapper. I am talking about me. I'm talking about the effect that I had. I am talking about, you know, waking up one day and looking at myself in the mirror. And although, yeah, I did a lot of stuff in the streets. Yeah, I got an anger problem. Yeah, I had guns. But I'm also a semester in the thesis away from my master's degree. Also through one of the largest urban relief concerts in history uh, for Katrina. You know, all of the stuff that we do in the community. I'm one of the youngest men who were ever inducted into the Mississippi Hall of Fame with music next to B.B. King. You know, uh, uh, I had a 3.9987 in accelerated master's program. Nobody ever talked about that. But I, fall, I, I, I felt myself falling into um, those stereotypes myself. 
You know, and although I'm from that culture, although I've done more than the average person that raps about it, you know, I started looking at it like, damn, bro, I'm going overseas and there's not a balance of information that's being broadcast out about young black men and women. At the time when Get Like Me was out, that's when uh, reality shows had just started, you know, and then our rap videos. So, you know, when we're being attacked and policemen are killing us and all that kind of stuff, you know, America is trying to justify that through our what? Our art. Saying that the things that we're doing are justified, bro. And I just said, I'm tired of being that, man. But I don't have to be that, bro. And, you know, I, I, I didn't get it when Andre made his change. When Andre 3000 made his change, bro. I, I, I didn't get it. You know, I, 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 I said one thing that I did want to be, though. I think the person who did it, did it with that to me was, was, was just so fucking genuine was Ice Cube. You know, when, when Ice Cube was, was made his switch and, and decided to go more conscious, he didn't change the way he dressed. He didn't, cha- he didn't stop cursing. The information that came out of his mouth, because he was feeding different types of information in, it came out, and that's what I wanted to be. You know, it, it ain't, ain't too much different about me. I still want the same things. I still do the same things. Those things just don't control me. And Vlad, I'm going to be honest with you, man. The things that I would have killed somebody over 10 years ago. They don't even matter anything to me now, bro. You know, and the sad thing is for the most part, a lot of a lot of people have bought into white supremacy, both black and white, because it pays. And then they use religion against you. You think because you're making money or it's easy on you that God has blessed you. That's a lie. If I've taken all the resources on this earth, and you start acting the way that I want you to act and I give you a little bit of your resources back and you think you think uh, uh, there's a connection between your prayers and you getting a couple of those resources back. That's some bullshit. I, I, I think that religion, you know, they talk about in, in America, especially in our major cities, how, you know, everything is is being co-opted and and regentrified. But the same thing happened in religion. The same thing happened in music. The same thing happened, you know, in in, in the way that we look. You know, yeah, it's a lot. I'll leave that right there. Well, you know, you mentioned Ice Cube. Mm-hmm. How did you feel when you saw the video of Bill Maher calling himself a house N-word? You know, and then later on Ice Cube went and, and talked to him about that. Uh I didn't get a chance to really watch Ice Cube's uh, video. I saw a little piece of it. Okay. Um, this is what I believe. But, but, but you saw the uh, the Bill Maher one, the original one. Yes, I saw Bill Maher. So this is how I feel. I, uh, Ricky Smiley just called me, and uh, I did his show about it. Ricky is a really good friend of mine. And uh, I did a Facebook Live post. This is what I feel. Black people who are watching Vlad, For one time in recent history, let's agree on something. Let's agree that we're not giving any more white folks passes when it comes to the word nigger. See, there's these gray areas and these people and some black folks feel like they can give certain people passes. None of us 
have the power or should think we have the power for a whole race of people. But let's just say today on DJ Vlad that we agree that there ain't no white folks calling black folks niggas in their face. And if you do, it's totally disrespectful and it warrants a fight. So what happens is, is again, our culture has been co-opted so much and so many of our leaders want to be up under white people with power that we give them passes. When the truth is this, I personally believe that Bill Maher is a little bit too comfortable because I, it, I, I said this and I mean this. I asked one of my white friends one time, I said, yo, bro, are you comfortable with saying the word? Uh, are you comfortable with saying, uh, are you comfortable with saying the word nigga? And he said, not around you. I said, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's safe for you. I said, but in general, are you comfortable? He said, yeah. I said, were you comfortable 10 years ago? He said, no. I said, why? He said, for two reasons, David Banner. He said, well, for one reason, I thought a black dude would kick me in my ass. So I was afraid. He said, that's one reason. He said, the second reason is because I respected the struggle of what black people have gone through historically as it pertains to that word. Because one thing white people seem to forget, there is a reason why we don't want you to call us nigga. And you are the reason why that shit happened. I am a victim of your fucking racism. So he said, well, David, I said, well, if you were not comfortable then and you're comfortable now, what does that mean? He said, damn, David, man, I never thought about that. He said, that means either I'm not scared of black people anymore or I don't respect them. If you love me, let's say something very bad happened to you, bro. Let's say you got stabbed with a knife in your fucking neck, right? When I'm around you, Vlad, I'm not going to be spinning a knife up in the air. Even if you play with knives, you want to know why? Because I respect what you have gone through. Black people had to accept the word nigga because we didn't have a choice at one time whether we were going to be called nigga or not. It was a whole five, over 500 fucking years of pain that white folks never did shit about. Think about this. Obama just passed the fucking law when he was president. He got not a law, but he gave 12 million dollars to 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 Jewish people who were affected by the Holocaust. I don't have a problem with that. That's cool. But America didn't have anything to do with the Holocaust. So if, if, if white folks really cared about what happened to black folks, they would either give money or pass laws to protect them, which they have done neither for the most part. So for white people to want to say the word nigga and act like they care about us, get the fuck out of here, dude. Why would you want to do that? What, what is what is the degree and the, and again to me that's white supremacy. You don't it doesn't affect you, so you really don't give a fuck. Let me or you or any of y'all motherfuckers in here say something negative about a Jewish person. I bet you I bet you DJ Vlad TV gonna disappear. I bet y'all David Banner CDs or end up being off the. They do something. Say something about any other race of pe people uh, on national TV that's derogatory. Lights and shit gonna start flickering off. But the problem is, is black people don't have anyone to protect them. Most other people have a country and a flag that will come to, 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 to protect them. Africa, for the most part, we don't have, you know, a country in Africa that's gonna come to black people's uh, rescue at, for the most part.
So it's like then we have to turn around to our oppressor, the same people who have done those things and called us and created that word nigga in the form that it is in now um, to protect us. You know, I want to ask, I, I, I always ask this in my speeches. If any of us, especially as a black person, if we do something to a Russian kid, guess who coming to see us? Russians. If we do something to an Asian person, guess who coming to see us? Fucking ninjas. Cut our fucking head off. When something happens in our community, we got to run to the police. And then the same motherfuckers in a lot of cases, that's killing us anyway. So the word nigga, bro, let's just say from now on, so it will be very clear. If you say the word nigga, it's a derogatory term. And, and, and I want to tell the youngsters this. This is to all of our, uh, our young people. Because we always blame these children for their music. And we always want to dump shit on these children. But our children, again, and I said this the last time, are a reflection of what we did, not, did or did not teach them. If y'all have white friends that are around you calling you a nigga, then that reflects on how they feel about you. And they feel about your culture. The way that people act around you, I always used to tell people this, like, you act, you say what you want to around the people that you feel comfortable around saying it around. You know what I'm saying? Uh, if Bill Maher was probably in the room with your friend that you told me about, do you think that he would say that? Probably not. You think if he was in Jackson, Mississippi or Brookhaven, Mississippi, where my uncle literally got hung, my great uncle got hung from a tree for fucking real. So you saying nigga means something to me. I'm not so far removed from my culture that I don't, rem I, 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 I don't remember or I don't respect it. The way that you let people talk to you and act around you is a reflection of how they feel about you. Your uncle got hung from a tree? Yeah. My great uncle. Great uncle. Uh, yeah, that's horrible. Yeah, I think that certain people, you know, like like for example, this has been a an ongoing topic in a lot of my interviews with Lord Jamar, where he stated that white rappers, you're coming to this almost as a guest, okay? Matter of fact, you are guests in the house of hip-hop. Just because you have a hit record doesn't give you the right, <laughs> as I feel, to voice your opinion. And I, and I completely agree with him. I actually, there was an old interview I found years before me and Jamar started doing interviews where someone asked me that and I actually said the same thing, just by total coincidence. And I think that certain white kids feel because they have a certain number of black friends, they listen to hip hop, they might have messed around with a couple black girls, that they now have a pass to say certain things and they really don't. Well, well but th this is what I, this is the thing that, uh, what my life has changed. I used to come from a place of, of anger. Now I come from a place of love. So I'm speaking from a place of love. If you have been blessed by hip hop and been blessed, black people have allowed you in their culture, you should love them enough to not want to say it. That is the point. Even if they let you, it, it, it doesn't fucking matter. But the fact that we allow them to be comfortable enough 
You know, I, I remember when I, I got into a conflict with somebody about it. You know, um, the fact that's what I was telling you about white supremacy. The fact that white people feel comfortable enough to argue with the black person about how the shit that they did to us makes us feel it's white supremacy. Because at the end of the day, if it hurts me, you can go on back and be white. I still have to deal with that. You, you understand what I'm saying? So my point with those rappers is not just the face, not just the fact that they should be punched in their fucking mouth, but from a love perspective, if they really love and respect the culture, then why would they want to do that? And, and let me ask you another question. And, and this is when you were asking me the question about, you know, people, uh, uh, the rappers who were half white and half black. I would always notice with the exception of maybe one or two that I've heard, they go real hard on the word nigga, but you never hear them say cracker. Never hear them say anything derogatory about the other side of their family. So the people who buy them and the culture that they are in, you would you should you should hold them up and call them gods. But because something has happened to them historically, and maybe they may not in some cases even know that there is a problem, you talk about them the worst. Why didn't you do the co? Why didn't you do the, the culture or do something from the culture of your other side that you hold so high? Because if that's the case, then why don't you talk about everybody equally? The same people, or those same rappers who want to say nigga, are they as excited to say anything else on their record? But most people are scared, even other white people, of what white society will do to them. Because all they do is pull resources. Like I told you last time, white supremacy is only afraid of two things. That's the loss of life and that's the loss of finances. But the flip part of that is when you own the power to take a life or take resources, then you, in, in most cases you also um, control the mind and the mouth of those who come up under you. One of the things that that Ice Cube told Bill Maher was that the N-word was used by white people as a weapon. And, and they can't have that word back now. But if you take a step back, do you feel that that word should just be removed altogether? Because you don't hear other races using derogatory terms towards each other. You know, like you don't hear Jews calling themselves kikes or you don't hear, you know, Mexicans calling themselves beef. Other races haven't been, first of all, other races, excuse me for interrupting, haven't been through what black people have been through as long as we went through it. And in a lot of cases, a lot of other races who have went through some similar things, they can move and matriculate within that oppressive race in some cases without being detected if they would throw away their culture. The, the, the problem with black people, and I, I, I keep trying to explain this to folks, is that we haven't been out of slavery longer than we were in slavery, and people keep forgetting that. And we've never been reprogrammed. Even the so-called smart black people who went and got conscious, most of them didn't come back and teach. So we never got any mental therapy, social therapy, uh, cultural therapy. Like, I don't, I, I, I did my blood test. I found out what region I'm from, but I, culturally, I don't even know where the fucking, where the fuck to start. So we, most of us who are conscious, 
and that's on the internet and it has smartphones, we judge everybody based on what we know. When in most cases, that was the reason why I made this God box box. As I know most people don't understand what the fuck I'm talking about on the God box. So we have to educate them. We have to surround them with the DVDs, with the lectures, with every fucking thing that you possibly can. That's the reason why I, with the exception of L.A. Um, and Chicago and Houston, only because they paid me to come, I go to small towns where people don't go to. I go to the places where the rappers are scared to come. You feel me? Or most entertainers are scared to come. Where most of their grandparents are from. Where, where, where they're not privy to that type of information. Whereas what they don't understand is growing up, if you research the black codes, they, I, I talked about the school system. You criticize young black kids for not wanting to read and do math. But a, a, shit, a few decades ago, there were laws. Like, yeah, a few, 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 few decades ago. Um, there were laws that if you knew how to read or write and you were black, you could die. Or fucking be locked up. Nothing ever happened to subsidize that gap. So it's like, even with my flag in my box, people have to know why it is important to have a flag. If they don't, it's just a piece of cloth. I don't want people to stop saying nigga because somebody forced them to say nigga. I want people to stop saying niggas because they are gods. And because they know that they are gods. But... There are some niggas out here. And they ain't all black people. Ignorance and, 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 and lack of life and information, it, it can be anybody. White folks can be niggas. Anybody can be a nigga. The problem is the, the, the use of it to blanket a whole race of people. So for, 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 for me, I, I, I just think that, I, and I hate so much when people point at someone else and say because you do something it makes my wrong right my wrong don't make your wrong right especially why you the reason why it's wrong in the fucking first place um and i also have a problem culturally is when white folks go to africa or white folks come to the hood and they have opinions on, on, on how to make black culture better no come and fucking listen Come and ask, how can you help? The problem of thinking that you're smarter and you're better and you have the answer for something that you are not is the problem in the first place. See, and, and what you can do is for, um, they'll give money for dogs. They'll pass law for dogs. Even doing the point where, uh, where, 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 where innocent black children were being uh, murdered at a very high rate by cops. Innocent people, they passed laws to protect cops during the time when they was out here killing black motherfuckers. It's the same thing with, with, with the owner of the fucking Clippers. He called us a nigga and he got a billion dollars. Don Imus called our women nappy head hoes and got a million dollar deal. It's like when white folks do wrong publicly, they get paid for it. We, we, just, we just go away and deal with it. Pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Now, my thought on this, um, the effect of Christianity regarding African-American people 
Now, to me, is that America is a continent that has a history of war, violence, money, uh, terror, um, let's see, wickedness, everything. Now, African American Christians is not going to see it this way because this is their faith. Because some people, uh, African American people, are into Christianity. Because Christianity, to me, is basically mythology. Now, within that, African American people in the U.S. of A. That's the United States of America is not going to consider do the research and consider not even going to step away from this. No. Why? Because it's how you've been taught and rooted since you were indeed a child taught by your parents. So understand this whole effect is basically black history. It's black history to to a a, a fact how African American people became became a Christian. It's through slavery. Because the slave master basically gave us Christianity. He took, he took everything from us, but the language, he took our culture and everything like that, but not the language. So Christians are not going to look at it. And they will say, well, uh, that was being, now where's this, Jesus, that, whatever. But just like David Benner said, that black people, when it comes to Jesus, you have a complex problem, but just true. Now, understand, black Christians is not going to see this book because I call it I call it a closed, cardinal, uh, narrow mind. You're not going to see this way or do the research about it. That's why Brother Malcolm X said, any religion you get into, you have to do the uh, description of that religion you're going to convert. But since black children like myself don't ask questions. Do not ask questions. Just do what a particular particular parent told you to do. Don't ask questions. Just do what I tell you. You know what I'm saying? So African American people that's in this religion of mythology, that's what it is, mythology to me. That is it's rooted of a history that African American people, the reason why we were so easy to be gang in oppression. Because he thought it through. When you think things through, you know how to come in as a conqueror like that on a conquest to the new world that is basically the United States of America. So understand why African-American people that this basically still, we are still under this and we have effect by it because we're going by something that we're not going to accept. Well, I'm not, I'm not saying me. Well, African-American people are not going to accept that Jesus is not coming back. No, he's not. But see, you've been, you've been taught that, been taught that, since the day you've been born. So the effect that it has on African American people, because it's, you're going by a tradition of a slave master. Yes, you are. It's not to be prejudiced or racist, but it's basically the truth because Caucasian European people, they gave African American Negro slaves the Bible and they taught them this from since day one of oppression of African American people. So to me, that this Christianity stuff that basically is a slave religion. Also, when you talk, when you tell your congregation of black people to look in the sky and go, but that when you, when you die, you go to heaven. That's a fool's paradise. That's an ignorant paradise. 
Just like David Banner said, black folks are not only just niggas. Anybody can be a nigga if you're just ignorant. But the point I'm looking at, I'm going to call it a short show on this one. Um, then tomorrow, then let, I mean, excuse me, then later on, do an, actual so, do an actual show on myself. Basically, just no ad, nobody on YouTube, nothing. Just do an actual show, me just doing a discussion, subject, topic about whatever. To me, this is a history of black history. What happened? Like I said, black folks is not going to even consider to look and do a thorough, a thorough investigate of analyzing their religion and faith, believing in a trinity that is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You got to understand what that means, which some black folks don't know what it means, but majority of black folks don't know what that means. That's how you've been taught. So, I'm going to end this. Let me get some rest. And I just basically said uh, what, the, what the effect it had on us because of slavery and, you know, African-American people carry on the, the tradition of slaves. Uh, tradition. Uh, so, to me, I don't, personally, I've been raised in the um, Christ, Christian faith. Um, I don't believe in Christianity. Let me just be honest, I don't believe in Christianity. I believe there is a God in that I don't believe in religion. I don't. Because religion is only put together when it comes to black folks to control the population of society and community of the people, just like black folks. Black folks are not going to realize that you've been given Christianity since day one. They brought you over here, brought us over here with my ancestors over here. So Christianity is just a made-up religion through the household of Constantine and Caesar. Accept the truth. And there you go. Dre was my name, Dre was conqueror, all that. Peace and farewell. What up, Anchor? What up, Anchor FM? What up, the whole entire world, Spotify? Follow me on my Facebook account, that is Dre Wise Conqueror. Also, look for uh, and check out my, um, that's coming soon, May 1st, um, my exercise video of calisthenics. And I will post that on my Facebook account, you know, as a party, as a group, whatever. Catastatics, the video of Catastatics, produced, edited by me, Dre Wise. Also, donate to my cash app, instant donate to my cash app, that is dollar sign Lucian Jarrell 7. Dollar sign Lucian Jarrell 7. Here, today on Anchor FM and Spotify and CastBox and Apple Podcasts. So I'm everywhere. So like I said, look for and check out May 1st, May 1st, my uh, catastatics video, exercise video, brought to you by me, presented by me, and produced by me, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, Dre Wise, your boy Dre Wise, counter, counter, peace, and farewell, and stay tuned.